evilbobdayjob.tripod.com and I'm going to have trouble reading the story because some of the characters speak with disjointed accents and um, my poor husband I didn't read his book yet <laughs> I guess that's horrible seeing as he watches most of my YouTube videos. So this story is called Trailer the Temptress. And I'm just doing this for Rob because our microphone's broken and um, this is the way he can extract audio from the video. So Trailer the Temptress. When I read the flyer for Meals on Wheels, I never thought I'd be hauling a frozen goat out of my trunk and down a hole in the ground. Plus, I expected to be in kind of run-down neighborhoods, since I figured it was poor folks, mostly. Ted's place was sandwiched in between two brick houses in a fancy old suburb. You'd walk up to this wild, wide flowering shrub that kind of shot limbs out in all directions and hung back to the ground and right in front of the shrub was a rusted mailbox that said Ted Scar Burton. I'd have to lug this cold goat under one arm and hold back branches from the shrub so I can find the hole. Then I'd get on my hands and knees and drop my legs down the hole while twigs and little buds and flowers got tangled in my hair. I'd come out of the tunnel to his big cavern and yell, Anybody home? The place reminded me of the bargain basement of a flea market because it was a huge open room, maybe 50 feet across the big circular hollow, and it was always kind of cold and musty. And because there were thousands of trinkets on shelves all over the walls, these mismatched shelves made out of fiberboard and old gray plywood and corrugated tin poking out of the dirt walls from every direction. The shells were covered with German cuckoo clocks and kissing Dutch tots and glass ki ki kittens cleaning themselves and ceramic figurines of anorexic fairies holding flowers and golden angels blowing trumpets and purple plastic happy mode gorillas and three issues of popular mechanics and a broken remote control for a TV set that's been gone 15 years and more ceramic figurines and glass hearts and fake orange flowers and wooden clothespins. He would always stretch up right beside me from somewhere I hadn't noticed, spooking the shit out of me. But that's because his sand, his skin was all sandy brown and scaly to hide in the earth. He went through that thing when I first started bringing him meals, where he wanted to fill my hair and he let me check out his skin. 
He ate and lived among white folks all his life, so I was one of the first blacks he had ever seen in person. I tried to brush it off when he first asked to feel my hair. I said, don't you get white people asking weird things about you, treating you different, like asking to touch your skin and see your claws? But I was curious about him too, since he was the first troll I had ever met. No, most times when humans treat me different over the years I eat, them I eat. But you know, doctors says no more. Most of them give you worms. They all bad livers from drinking, you know, lungs full of tar. He would cross his long arms, lick his chin and smile. I used to enjoy, now no more, goats. We talked about it for a while, but after the discussions of race and class, I still wanted to touch his skin, so we exchanged our curious, racially ignorant groping for a minute. His arms looked like packed dirt with gravel and pebbles, but it was really like a hard lizard skin or frog skin. Once in a while, when I stopped in, I'd catch him before he straightened up the lair and see his empty, molted skin lying on the rug. He'd always grab it up quick and kick the little strips and flakes of skin into the corner. When he pressed the lock of my hair between his abrasive fingers that time, he hummed and studied my hair and skin and eyes with no shame for staring. Good hair looks very pretty tied as you have done so. Why they make a big deal of how you black so different? You skin no more tough or durable than pale skin. Clear to me that you just clam up camouflage for different setting than those Norwegian and Asian peoples. Bah! No matter, very pretty hair and hips you have. Strong girl if you carry goats for me. He kept staring at my hair and smiling and scanning down the buttons of my shirt to my legs and up again. I almost said something, but he patted me gently on the shoulder and said, Grow you some babies soon, before you too old to enjoy them. Frowning people make the world crowded, but never too many smiles like on you. Ted was always real nice. He showed me his shelves full of angels proudly, reminding me of where he had gotten the pieces, as if he hadn't told me the weeks before. I guess he was really getting on in years, several centuries. He couldn't get around very quickly, and apparently didn't have the money to buy food or the strength to hunt anymore. In this kitty, Ted would say, my heart's pride, real, really. It was a white ceramic cat with blue ear tips and paws and a face that looked too human. Before Jimmy's Hendrick took this from a girlfriend, it was actually owned by the sister of President Eisenhower. His cavern slowly got smaller over the two years I delivered meals to him. He's gradually filling it so he could finally bury himself when he grew too weak to go on. He might still be there though I guess another year or two before that den will be full when I finally pull myself away from Ted I drive over to the state park it was a mile of tall pines and their orange needles falling along the roadside 
I'd pull to the side of the roadway to Gar Lake and grab a cupcake and a stack of newspapers off the back seat. There's a jogging hiking trail across the road where I'd make my way back to the pines and the needle-covered forest floor. As the ground turned boggy and the pines gave way to leafy trees and bushes and cattails coming out of the mud, a sign stood two feet off the ground to identify the patch of yawning green trumpet weeds growing nearby. At the marker sign, I would turn off the path and walk towards the edge of the swamp water. Within a few feet of the water, depending how much it had rained in recent weeks, was the dead husk of a tree trunk, broken off a foot or two over my head, hollow from top to bottom. In a small crevice at the base of the dead tree was Kenny's crystal. Every time I walked up, Kenny would say, It's so good to see you. God, I hope you can stay a while today. I'm pretty sure he started crying on more than one occasion, but it was hard to see his shrunken form inside the crystal. And I did stay for long hours the first few times I visited, out of pity. He couldn't go anywhere, and no one else came to see him. I was the only one who would bring him cupcakes and newspapers. His life force and all his powers had been confined within the crystal, but he had a little residual magic that he could use to turn the pages of newspapers lying on the ground near his crystal and he could slowly absorb cupcakes, some kind of magical telepathic ingestion. I don't know how it worked. Anyways, he couldn't eat or drink anything while he was trapped in the crystal, and he would likely be there for thousands of years before they would let him out. So tasting a real cupcake now and then was a special treat for him. He would start flipping through the magazines and newspapers as soon as I brought them, asking me if I knew more about the wars in North Asia or the unicorn scandal that threatened to topple the Canadian Prime Minister. Man, I knew from the first time I saw that guy Cretan, there was something hidden behind that glamorous facade. Didn't you see it? I mean, the way he was always so nervous. He couldn't help slurring his speech. Uh, I just thought it was because he was from Quebec. Kenny would scold me for not keeping abreast of politics, as if it was important for someone trapped in a crystal for 20 lifetimes to know the political climate in Canada. I never paid attention to that crap, but I tried to tell him what little I heard on the TV news about the current events. Kenny would lean forward on his seat to hear every tidbit, like I was a queen announcing a royal decree. Yes, on his little seat, he had conjured tiny armchairs and bookshelves within a crystal, and his walls were hung with paintings by Mondrian and Warhol. I'm not sure where he slept. Either the couch was a well-concealed futon, or maybe he conjured his bed every night and sent it away every morning. When I break free and the old gods reclaim their domination over this world, Kenny would tell me, I'm going to do something special for you. I really mean it. Maybe a new car. They'll let me do that, you know. 
I'll have that much power if I help them return. And he would go off on his usual gripe about how life would have been great if only he had succeeded in calling the old gods before getting locked up. Usually that would cure my pity for him when he showed how much self-pity he still had. And I would look at my watch on my bare wrist or otherwise make an excuse to leave. Kenny would rise from his chair as if he were seating me to the door and thank me for coming. Sometimes he would be angry that I wasn't staying and he would turn his chair away from the crack in the tree trunk, picking up a tiny book from his microscopic coffee table. Like he had been enjoying his stay in the tree trunk and my visit was a minor distraction. He'd say, please see if you can find some back issues of The Economist next time. Other days, he would beg me to stay with him a few minutes longer. Once, he jumped out of his chair and threw his arms out, screaming and waving his hands back and forth and round in circles in front of him, and a green bud poked out of the dirt in front of the dead tree and blossomed into a daisy. Then he fell to the floor, the bottom facet of the crystal, panting. One day, soon, something special, just for you. New car, maybe. I took the daisy that time, said goodbye, and made my way back through the bushes to the trail. When I got back to the car, the daisy was wilted. As I opened the door and sat in front of the steering wheel, my hands were empty. My last stop was not as emotionally taxing as the others. I often looked forward to it after long visits with Ted or Kenny. It was a beautiful drive through the rest of the park, passing by Gar Lake and into the countryside. Just farms and silos and old scattered farmhouses for a few miles. Then the road grew small shops and businesses like moss along a stretch here and there until the moss became a series of fungal strip malls. After a row of warehouses, newly built condominiums and torn up mud lawns and a strip of video joints and empty storefronts, I would turn off the main road to Sunshine Court. The trailers near the front of Sunshine Court were old but well kept. Lawns mowed and porches neatly arranged with rocking chairs and a few wind chimes. As you drove back over the speed bumps further, the lawns grew denser with car parts and old refrigerators, stacks of salvage lumber and crippled motorcycles. Near the back corner of the trailer court was a dull yellow trailer with a cracked plastic bird bath beside the front door. I would park in that trailer's empty space, walk up beside the dry bird bath, and knock on the door. <coughs> this place was just a standard delivery, some generic dinner entree, and a white styrofoam takeout box. I would wait beside the wobbly concrete blocks that served as stairs steps to her door, looking over the few deprived weeds that grew out of the hard-packed sand. It always spooked me when the door opened and the lady appeared. Inside the trailer, the shadows would hold her tight. Satin robe, maybe blue or brown, but you couldn't tell until she stepped into the light. The body of a ballerina and always the deathly serious lips.
Her hair was straight and black, and her face was so white that sometimes I thought she had answered the door in the middle of giving herself a facial. Then she'd step into the light more, and I could see that there was no cold cream spread over her cheeks and forehead, just cold skin. The problem was she looked 30, no gray in her hair, not enough wrinkle in her face as to be any older. I always wondered if she was scamming the charity to get meals delivered to her for free. I couldn't figure how she was a shut-in. The only hint was when I would hand her the white box with roast beef and potatoes and gravy, and her skin would brush my fingers as she reached for it. Her flesh was like marshmallows, reminding me of my grandmother's skin, the way she bruised so easily and felt like her skin would come off in puffs of dandelion seeds if a strong wind caught her. When the lady had to step down into the light, she stepped slowly. Then I could see that she wasn't a lanky ballerina, just about the same height as me. And in spite of her perfect stream of hair and her sharp royal face, her hips were more apparent. I don't want to say she was unattractive because her hips were too wide, but standing above you in the dark, you swear she could go get a contract as a model and you'd put some money on the probability that she has some surgery to look that good. But when she stood next to you, you'd see she was plain and real. She'd received the box of food with both hands, looking at the ground as she whispered thank you. Then she would set a pink slippered foot on the step and ease herself back into the trailer. So many times I wanted to say, are you alright? Is there anything else I can get you? But the door would click shut and I'd stand there wondering. I was too curious about her, so finally... So I finally asked one of the veteran meal deliverers, this hippie dude that carried the boxes of food and the sidecar on his Harley. He said she never talked to him either, but he knew her story. His grandfather had told him about the temptress, the farm girl who had risen to duchess of the territory around the turn of the century. Back when the town had wooden sidewalks and a hitching post outside the dime store. Back before flying carpets went into mass production and horseless carriages were propelled by the tortured spirits of stallions that wizards harnessed instead of six cylinders harnessed by Korean engineers. She had found that those dangerous secrets, known only by the oldest, most powerful wizards, could be available to her if she made herself available to them. It was much easier than the usual system of being sorcerer's apprentice to some lout, gradually learning magic over the decades of study. As she mastered more spells, she drove over she drove off the major warlocks within the township and then the county as soon as they became useless to her. She rose to Duchess over half the territory before it got too boring and she decided that political power wasn't her bag. 
Then she disappeared from public view back to her little castle in the woods. People heard stories about movie stars heading into those woods, and one of the last czars made a trip to visit the area. President McKinley made a train stop in town for his campaign, after which he was seen in a convoy of old Fords heading into the woods. Some say he pissed off the temptress and that it wasn't for political reasons that he was later shot. They said she had offered herself to him and he had declined. After that, there was less traffic into the woods. In the 50s, a traveling salesman passing through town told people about the demolished castle he had stopped at in the woods, and sure enough, it had been smashed to rubble. She was later recognized as one of the inhabitants in the new trailer park, but no one paid her, atten her any attention after that. Still pretty, but somehow not enough. She had lost her magic. She could still seduce the piece of boy, but he wouldn't think of her as a mysterious woman to pledge his life to, just the slut in the brown trailer. Then again, when I was making those deliveries, I felt a pull, too. I wanted to stay and talk with her, give her some company. I'd drive a long way home through the country, sometimes bringing an extra styrofoam box up to my apartment in the hillside and sit in my kitchenette eating cold roast beef and mashed potatoes under gelled brown gravy, looking out my window at the cars, and I'd wonder what the temptress watched as she ate. What does she do with her days? Clearly she has a lot of them left. If she's been around 150 years already. According to the biker dude. <laughs> and still that looks good. Does she watch the Rosie O'Donnell show and Oprah after a morning of soaps? Does she yell at the guests on Sally Jesse Raphael? Does she listen to Josephine Baker records all day and read books that she's read hundreds of times before? Or does she gather ingredients for ancient spells, pouring over disintegrating parchments and repeating the incantations over and over, day after day, hoping she will regain her lost power? Because I can see her doing that, just sitting at a little kitchen table booth that folds down into a bed, staring at the dried husks of paper and concentrating until her head blossoms into a migraine. That's how she always looked when she came out to get her food, like I had interrupted her from flogging herself. When the leaves turn red and brown on the trees and the cold wind blows the dead leaves off, I think of those times I took food to the shut-ins. I know it's just autumn setting in, but I wonder how many more years the trees have left, if they're shedding leaves for the cold season or for the last time. So that was 23 minutes long. Sorry for making such a long video. But I hope Rob is satisfied with that. Even though I fumbled over parts.
Smith, reading Trailer of the Temptress. I greatly appreciate it. I was afraid I'd have to be like, it'd be like pulling teeth to get her to actually read the story into a recorder, because as she admitted, she hasn't even read the whole book yet. Aww. But she was so diligent with this story, she actually called me at work and said, um, how do I pronounce this thing? Uh, C-R-E-T-I-E-N. And I did not hear her, or she read it too quickly when she spelled it out. And I said, what, Cretan or Cretan? And I said, I'll look it up. It's on Answers.com. Here, we'll get the official pronunciation. And I looked up C-R-E-T-I-N, and it said Cretan, Cretan. Don't you love hitting the button and it goes Cretan, 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 to get it to pronounce. I said, there you go. She said, no, it won't have it because it's a name. And I said, no, it's not a name. It's like de- it's some kind of derived from people from Crete. And I had forgotten. I wrote this story like, I don't know, f- at least five or ten years ago. So I couldn't remember. Cretan sounds like the kind of word I would use. But then she got to reading it, and it's about uh, the former prime minister of Canada, Chrétien, Jean Chrétien. Um, but that's my fault. She diligently, she even said, Rob, how do you pronounce this thing? And I misled her. I thought she was saying Cretan. So don't think that she's ignorant. It was a miscommunication, and she was sincerely trying to find out how do you say this guy's name. Uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, so uh, anyway, if you want to watch her reading it for whatever reason, uh, she's got it. She made a video of it, posted it to her YouTube account. You can look up youtube.com slash Mel's Basket Case, and that will show you her channel of all her videos, and I guess you got to look for it from there. And uh, be sure to tune in uh, 8 million months from now when I get around to reading another story from Dungeons and Day Jobs. Uh, and, uh, hey, hey, while you're at it, uh, go by my website. It's at, it's, uh, it's over at, uh, oh, where is it? It's over yonder. This, this podcast is at dayjobspodcast.blogspot.com. But, more importantly, the, uh, sell it, bring it home, evilbobdayjob.tripod.com, evilbobdayjob.tripod.com is where you can buy a wonderful electronic edition uh, PDF file of Dungeons and Day Jobs, 170 pages, including the front material. Or uh, you can buy the fantastic 6 by 9 inch, I believe is the size of it, paperback of my short story collection, Dungeons and Day Jobs. You can also, uh, before you purchase, don't even purchase it, uh, you can preview a sample chapter get a preview story chapter thing all right until next time insert catchphrase here 